0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of
1: togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Cherie Demeline, author of Empire of Wild.
2: So the genesis of this story is it literally be- began on the back of an airplane vomit bag after reading an article
1: about a hot Jesus character. We'll be back with Cherie Demoline in just a bit.
0: First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreo dot com firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we're simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad free and pitch free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask no please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to
1: subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Cherie Demoline, author of five books, including The Marrow Thieves, which is a young adult novel and was named Book of the Year on numerous lists, including NPR, the New York Public Library, and the CBC. Demeline is a member of the Georgian bay Métis community and lives in eastern Canada. Her new novel, Empire of Wild, was inspired by the traditional canadian Métis legend of the Rogaroo, a werewolf-like creature that haunts the roads and woods of native people's communities. Empire of Wild's main character is Joan, whose beloved husband Victor disappears one night after they have a fight. While all those around her tell Joan that Victor is gone forever, she doesn't believe that and goes on a quest to find her husband. Joan, along with her 12-year-old nephew Zeus, discover a man they believe is Victor at a religious revival, but he is not the same person they once knew. Apparently, the legend of the Roguru may be more than a story and could be the cause of Victor's changed appearance. We began with Demeline describing her Métis ancestry, which means mixed.
2: There's this ongoing discussion about um, Métis, and so a lot of people differentiate it between small M Métis and capital M Métis. So it, the word Métis, yes, literally means, means mixed. Um, for us, it would be mixed between um, American Indian and European ancestry, but the Métis Nation, which would then, I guess, be the capital M, is just that. We started as the children um, of mostly French fur traders and uh, First Nations or uh, Indian women. But over the years, particularly in the area in, in Manitoba and in Canada, um, the families married into one another. And out of all of you know this continuing intermarriage between different mixed families a whole separate culture developed. So we have, um, we, you know, we speak our own language. It's Michif, which is, um, in, in my community is, and it's different, obviously different dialects, is a, a mix of really old French, um, a bit of Cree and a bit of um, Moan. Out West, it, it sounds more Cree. Um, and the ways in which we hunt, the ways that we uh, govern ourselves um, and a lot of our... Uh, teachings are different, different from European and from First Nations, though, of course, drawing from both. Métis people are um, historically largely Catholic, although I have to tell you, uh, growing up, I thought we were Catholic, and then I went to the city and went to a Catholic school, and it turns out (laughs) we are not. Um, We are in some ways, but a lot of it is um, sort of putting uh, our belief systems inside of, you know, Bible stories or, or the church. It, it's, it's almost I've heard someone uh, say it's kind of like a, like a kind of Santeria, like a, a voodoo version of, of catechism. For, for me growing up, I understood Jesus was an important figure because he, uh, in our story, uh, in my family could play the best fiddle And he also could make wine out of water. And he was, you know, the best musician in heaven. The most important figure for us was Mary because she was, you know, represented woman and leadership and power. And so it was very different in a lot of ways. But yes, so uh, the Métis community can be traced back to a specific homeland around the Red River um, and has its, its own unique culture.
0: I'm just curious about the genesis of Empire of Wild. How did this story come to you, and particularly the character of Joan?
2: This book started, I was on a red-eye flight from Vancouver to Toronto, which is probably the worst flight that you can take. And it was after um, a literary festival, and so I was traveling back um, and I was sitting in a middle seat, and the very large gentleman beside me kept sort of falling asleep and landing, you know, kind of on me, and I was couldn't sleep. So I reached into the seat pocket in front of me, and somebody had left uh, a magazine, and it was uh, the Walrus magazine. And the cover story, on the cover, there was uh, an illustration of Jesus, but it was like a super hot Jesus, like, like, a, like a really kind of like front cover of like, you know, I don't know, Maxim or Healthy Bodies kind of Jesus. And so I was like, well, hello, I'm going to read this article. And the article was actually about how these new missionary churches were coming into Canada. A lot of them were based in the United States, and they were spending a lot of time in Indigenous communities. Doing the work, of course, of missionaries of doing conversion and and um, building churches, and the main message underneath of it all was to bring people in, up off the land and into you know God to the Lord in these in these churches. And a couple of years before, I had uh, been a part. I played a small part. There was a project where they were trying to build a pipeline across the entirety of Canada, which of course would naturally fall through so many different uh, Indigenous territories, reserves, traditional territories. And my job was to help gather the stories from the communities that this project would impact. And one of the things that we quickly realized was that communities who had been Christianized, who had been brought in up off the land, so leaving behind things like ceremonial sites, uh, sites of you know, cultural significance, and even things like trap lines, were more susceptible to resource development and resource extraction projects. So it was, you know, I was, I'm reading this story on this plane about how these new missionaries are, are, are you know, very well-funded missionaries are uh, coming into the communities and, and trying to do this work, and knowing full well that that leaves them the communities more vulnerable to resource extraction. Um, I just thought, and, and and the kicker was that the these missionary churches were being led by indigenous preachers or ministers. So they had brought in people that looked like the community members in order to to do this work. And I thought, God, who would ever do that? Who would who would take on that job to to you know, convert their community and leave them vulnerable. Um, and then I immediately thought of a creature that I grew up hearing stories about, and that's the ruguru. And so the ruguru um, is, is different. He exists in, in several communities, but in my community, he's kind of um, almost where he's werewolf like but he takes more after a large a large dog than a wolf per se and he lives on the road and so he has many different uh roles and responsibilities but when i was growing up the stories we would hear is um, you know, it wasn't safe for us to leave our settlement area and go into the, the town because it was quite violent towards uh, Indigenous women and girls. And so the old women would tell us stories uh, about, you know, the Ruguru being on the road so that we wouldn't, the road was obviously the way you got into town. So we would be dissuaded from heading into town and we would never be alone. We would, we would travel in groups so it would keep us safer. But the boys in the community were told a different version of the Ruguru story. And that is, if you didn't respect, uh, especially the women in the community, if you didn't follow their lead, um, if you were in any way violent or disrespectful, that you could turn into the Ruguru. And so he's almost, um, I heard him being called like a, a, a trickster character, um, but he's, he certainly has... Uh, a very complex role. He kind of keeps us safe, but at the same time threatens us. It's almost like um, one of those creatures that does the bad stuff, so that you can see how ridiculous the bad stuff is, and change your behavior. So I um, immediately, sitting there in my crowded seat in uh, you know the middle of this red eye flight, uh, pulled out um, the only thing I could find to start writing this idea. Of, of, you know, missionary churches in the Rougarou, which um, was the barf bag. So the genesis of this story is it literally be- began on the back of an airplane vomit bag after reading an article about a hot Jesus character.
0: Well, that's pretty unusual. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so you mentioned that when you were young, the elder women told you about this Rougarou, which is a werewolf- like creature that haunts the roads in the woods that, you know, if you went into town, that it would scare you and um, mm-hmm. you to keep you from going. And that was the same story that Joan, your main character had. So I'm curious mm-hmm. if you could share what you thought of that. And then just tell us about a little bit about Joan.
2: You know, uh, Missy, full disclosure, I still believe in the Ruggroo. I don't know if that's just because he kind of traumatized my early years um, or if it's something else, I mean, I think to be completely honest, there's, there's, there's magic everywhere. It's, it's, you know, who, who am I to, um, you know, sort of say this, this can't possibly be, um, there's certainly enough different stories of him. I know in, uh, Louisiana, they have, um, Rougarou stories, uh, at West in Canada, there's Rougarou stories. Um, I've heard some um, people in northern, around the Michigan area, talk about um, stories that they've heard. Um, and I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of metaphorical parts to him. He served a purpose. Um, but gosh, there just seemed to be so many damn eyewitnesses whenever it came to those stories. I don't know. Um he he wasn 't something I really questioned because you know, as I got older, of course, you get skeptical and you 're a teenager um, and you 're trying to break away from you know you 're trying to assert your own autonomy and to create your own sort of mythologies, um, but there was something about those stories that didn 't make it really up for discussion and i and I think you know it got to the point where I understood that it was really about more than what he represented it was about the ways in which. Um, we were forced to survive and, and embraced that survival and took it beyond just surviving. Um, the character of Joan for me was uh, so, um, uh, just, it, it was such a, she is such a beautiful character to write because she is so beautifully broken and, and um, you know, driven not always by logic. She's driven by passion. She's um, very sexual. And, and I, I love writing uh, Indigenous women that can carry desire and, and free will. Um, you know, a lot of the stories that, that we hear about ourselves uh, as Indigenous people are are trauma. And and there's a reason for that because there's a lot of trauma, ongoing trauma. Um, but I really wanted to talk about more than uh, the burden of colonization and what that what that does to, to a woman and you know the burden of violence. I wanted to talk about sort of that heaviest weight that we carry, which is of course um, love. The fact that we're still here, the fact that we our communities are growing, you know that we have a high birth rate, that we still have enough hope to keep having children, um, um, I wanted to talk about that, and Joan was an opportunity um, to really delve into you know this, this character is flawed, um, she's broken in many ways, but oh, like damn, she's also the strongest person I could imagine. Um, and, and even, and, and I wanted to give her that same fear of the Rougarou, which, you know, is also the fear of, um, leaving the, the boundaries and the comfort of your community and, and, um, addressing bigger issues that, you know, that, that happen in the world, especially for, uh, you know, for women and for indigenous women, people of color, that, that, that the idea that you, your life is valued less. So I didn't want her to shy away from that, but I, I didn't. Also, want her to stop. I wanted her to keep pushing forward and and once you know I developed that that character it was it was easy to just sort of follow behind her while she just tore into every you know every scene whether or not she should have been been there she didn 't care she just did it um, so it was a, it was um, it was fun, yeah, she was a lot of fun to write and and difficult at times, and obviously based on I mean, every every character, every story comes from somewhere. I saw a lot of myself in her, the women that I I know uh, and love. Um, you know, she's she's named after my mother, um, and and so it was just a it was kind of a riot.
0: So, Joan's main quest when the story opens is that she is very in love with her husband, Victor. They have a very good relationship. It seems like they met just a teeny bit later in life, not when they were super young. Mm -hmm. And when they get in a fight, it's not a huge fight, but it was basically about her land. She had land, you were were describing the land on the water and she had some land in this beautiful spot that Victor wanted to perhaps sell. And they got in Mm -hmm. a fight about it and he disappeared and he was gone. And while everybody around her said he's just gone forever, she would not accept it. And she basically went on this quest with her nephew Zeus was it, was it her nephew or mm-hmm. yeah with her nephew he, Zeus He's like a
2: little cousin but yeah she she he's like an auntie or she's like an auntie to him so that's
0: yeah and he's just this sweet little boy and we'll talk about Zeus um to find him even though everyone around her said you won't find him and that's where the the Rogaru fit in, because it was possible that he was somehow made into a changeling, that maybe if she found him, she wouldn't even recognize him. So you were talking about kind of love, and I guess this is the way to really challenge love, is when, when it's gone from you, but you think, you know, you believe it's still out there somewhere.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I was... Um interesting to look at it from that perspective because obviously it didn't follow common sense right like you had a fight here are the facts you had a fight he stormed off he's not back and no one can find him there's no sign of a struggle there's no sign that any violence befell him he's you you got into an argument you admit to it and and now he is just gone but I really just wanted to I mean it's so much of um you know I hear so much about there's there's just a tendency to not believe uh, the emotional reality of things, right? Like the the gaslighting and sort of let's look at the facts, but this, they have a relationship. And that was also really um, a joy to write was a truly healthy, respectful, vibrant relationship between these two people. And, you know, she just knows, she just knows. And it was, and I kept, you know, people would butt heads with her over it. And I was sort of butting heads, you know, with, with myself writing it, like, why would she still hold on? And then I thought, no, if you truly love someone, you, there, there is an understanding that can't really be explained, that you are still connected. And so it was, um, it was fun. And it was, and it was really, when I was writing those arguments, you know, where people were trying to, quote, unquote, talk sense into her, I could hear those arguments. And I really didn't have a good answer because it was just her sense, her understanding that there's no way that this person, that this man would leave me, our bed, our home, um, and not come back. So it was uh, it was an interesting, it was interesting writing that part of it.
0: I think she really also looked to her grandmother, who is called Mere. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mere, just like the French uh, for mother. She has a line that you write early on when she's about to, perhaps really start this journey where mayor says sometimes we forget what's real and that gave you an inside s- scoop kind of into this world that maybe we're not just forgetting but that we put our own limitations on it if that makes sense mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. absolutely no absolutely and that and so um in, in most of my writing, there there is an older woman. I obviously was um, um, raised with my grandmother. She, uh, you know, I grew up with her. She lived with us, with my parents and I and my brother, you know, for my whole life. And so, and she, you know, was the one who gave me a lot of stories. And she would always question me when I would say, you know, well, that can actually happen. And she would just, just you know, gentle nudges. Why? Why couldn't that happen? Or these are the facts, who says these are the facts? Are there different versions of the facts? And it was sort of, you know, leaving me because she could, I guess, I really, when I think about it now, could see me closing off. Like you get out into the world and here's the rules and here's society. And you start to think of things like stories as superstitions, or you start to think of, of things, um, you know, like, like creatures and characters as mythology, as myths, which implies, you know, that they're not real. And so she would really question me on, on, you know, how, that basically the most important person that I had to believe when it came to, you know, looking at the world and how it really was was myself. And if something felt real and something I felt very strongly about it, then that was my first direction. That was the compass that I that I would have to turn to. Um, And so, Mare is is very much my Mare um, in that she she just has this exudes this quiet strength and and gives you small you know sort of nuggets, words here and there, images. For you to remember to, to look inward before you start looking outward. And, and for Joan, really, that was integral when she really, you know, there was a time she was very confused and, and wondering and, you know, could be this, could be that. And then she kind of looks inward and is like, no, I'm ready to move outwards now. I, I, I cannot give this up.
0: Yeah. And she doesn't, you know, she doesn't take no for an answer for the people around her who discourage her. Mm -hmm. So when she goes off in this journey, we mentioned Zeus and Zeus is her nephew. He has suffered some loss in his life in the sense that his mother B fell in love with a man who abandoned her, who turned out to be married. And it was possible if he had come back, his name was Jimmy, to be Mm -hmm. a father and be with them. Zeus had to be a great dancer. Dancing was part of him, part of what Jimmy did. He did the ceremonial traditional dance with the regalia and Zeus wasn't interested. He was a smart little boy, but that just wasn't his thing. And so B didn't have this tenderness for Zeus and I think Joan took that role and mothered him really. Mhm. Yeah.
2: Zeus Zeus was um you know, I really I realized this in, in writing over the years that um, some of the first uh, readers that I've ever had and people who still pick up um, my books are a lot of uh, uh, Native youth. And and it's such a, a privilege. It's such a privilege to have them uh, read my work. Um, and, and, I, and I get it. I remember growing up, um, there wasn't Native literature around. It wasn't common. You didn't see yourself reflected Certainly not in a good way in any of the media that that you had access to books or movies or TV shows, and you you didn 't see yourself in a good way in the classroom because the version of history that you were being taught was you know that we were saved and we were savages, and you know all of these other you know um, horrible narratives that really don 't feel good when you 're growing up and, and this is, you know, this, this is your community and you just hear and see and, and, and just are, are surrounded by all these negative images. And so I'm always really conscious when I'm writing that I want to be truthful. I, I don't want to write stereotypes. I, I don't think I, I could. I, I mean, I was privileged enough to be able to grow up in my community, so I have very real experiences of it. But I want to make sure that in all of my stories um, that I'm truthful, especially for young readers um and so I when I thought about I was you know developing the story and I thought something's missing because Zeus didn't uh, didn't appear uh in my mind when I was working on it at the beginning and I I thought god what is what is missing there's there's some sort of possibility. There's a lightness where like, you know, there's these funny, there's Agene, you know, who's this funny older traditional woman and there's Mare, who's, you know, very strong and loving and, and Joan has comedic moments and her family's kind of crazy, but what is missing? And, um, and I was talking to uh, Lee Miracle, who's a very renowned native um, uh, author. And she said, you know, we were talking about a lot of things and she said, well, you know, um, I think you had an easier time writing my book before, which was The Marrow Thieves, because it was young people. And in our communities, we need young people. We need youth. They give us hope. And 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 we always are conscious of leaving, if not a door, a window open for them so that no matter how dark things get, there's always light. And I thought, ah, there it is. I'm missing a young person. and And I... I thought, okay, I, I want to write this young person. I don't know whether this person's going to be, you know, identify as male or female or, or who they're going to be. So I'm just going to start writing a dialogue between Joan and this young person. And let's just see what happens. And Zeus developed out of that, um, you know, he is, he is different, uh, as most kids are, very unique, incredibly uh, intelligent, funny. Uh, just really does resemble so many of the indigenous youth that I I know that I grew up with and that I've met over the past you know years, sort of doing the literary circuit, and and I and I loved that about him that he just quite naturally took on all of these you know odd little um, pieces that make a person so special, and and you know I and I part of uh, naming him was I wanted to give him. Um, strength but I also wanted to tie him into the whole myth uh, or story rather uh, of the Ruguru. and so I did this uh, thing where I started researching wolves because well okay I'm going to take this sort of uh, go back to a different place because this is where uh, the idea of studying wolves came from I started writing this book and then realized oh my god I'm trying to talk about a, a creature that is very close to me uh, and other people who grew up with Ruguru stories, but that largely doesn't exist in the mainstream imagination. So how am I going to tell this story? I don't just want to talk about what he is. So, you know, the big reveal is not, you know, sort of his monstrous form. It's everything that he stands for. Um, but that's missing from, from you know, sort of an under, a general understanding. So... How do I make that connection for readers who didn't have rigorous stories, who aren't from those communities? So I thought, well, you know, there's got to be other stories like this. So obviously there's, there's the werewolf, but I'm like, what, what really is the werewolf and where does this story come from? And um, I happened upon um, one of the origin stories for werewolves, which comes from Greek mythology. And, you know, there's a man and he is inviting Zeus. To his house for dinner, and Zeus, uh, apparently, I didn't know this before, is forbidden from eating uh, humans. So the man is very, uh, you know, conceited and braggy, and he's in his village, and he's saying, "I can fool a god. I will fool Zeus, the king of gods. Watch this." So the man uh, actually slays his own son um, and serves him for dinner to Zeus. Disguised as, I think, a lamb. So Zeus shows up. Of course, it's Zeus. He knows everything, he's everywhere. So he immediately sees that this is human, that he's being served. And he punishes the man by turning him into a beast. And the whole point is to not just make him, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a carrion, a, a creature that is, you know, a carnivore. The point is to make him into an omophage to make him into a creature that lives by consuming their own kind. And so the man is turned into a werewolf. And this is, this is the origin story that I happened upon. Um, And so I thought, wow, that's, I can see similarities in, in how, you know, it's a, it's a teaching for the community and it's also about doing the right thing. Um, And, and, you know, there's, there's, there's different aspects of it that was familiar to me, but, I gave that name Zeus and sort of the one who knows the one that can see more than other people to this, this young character to give him that um, a little bit of a little bit uh, more power.
0: So going back to the, the plot itself, as, as Joan goes with Zeus to find Victor, she alights on this church revival environment. They're, they're a group Mm -hmm. of, of roving there's a preacher and there's a few people alongside and they move kind of from town to town with a tent. And she runs into the the main guy there. Yeah. Eugene Wolf. Yeah. And she mm-hmm. runs into him and he's having pretty intense sermons with the public. And she becomes convinced that that is Victor. For me, it was interesting because I don't know that much about your culture that you thought you grew up Catholic. So that, that interface mm-hmm. between some of these native thoughts about magic and history and storytelling interfacing with Christianity was really interesting. I was really
2: privileged to spend uh, some time over the past few years uh, with a man named Stuart snake, who's from uh, the Winnebago uh, reservation in Nebraska. And he uh, was uh uh, involved in the Native American Church, and we talked about how the ways in which our cultures uh, survived by using the church. So for a long time, I mean, in Canada up until the 1960s, I don't know what was on the the books in the United States, but in Canada up until the 1960s, it was illegal for us to sing or dance or gather in groups. The one exception would be is if you were uh, involved in the church. So. We were not allowed to to gather together to, you know, practice our beliefs or the ways that, that brought us joy and community uh, unless it was involved in the church. And so um, uh, Stuart talked about how, you know, in throughout time when the laws came down and, and different things were outlawed, Ceremonies were outlawed in the United States for Indians and and gatherings were outlawed, that they found a way to use the church to to sort of, in between the pages and sentences of the Bible, insert their own beliefs so that they could gather, so that they could celebrate, and they could do it right under the noses of the authorities who thought that they were, you know, converting these, you know, savages into civilized people, Um, in Canada, we had uh, reserv- uh, residential schools in the United States. I know there was boarding schools. And the first prime minister of Canada, uh, Sir John A. MacDonald, uh, his- the whole motto for the schools was to um, um, kill the Indians, save the child. So it was about mass conversion and-, and the ways in which they saw that this could be accomplished was, of course, Uh, as we see with many genocides, removing children from, from homes, um, separating them from their caregivers and raising, trying to raise them uh, in a totally different environment with a different set of beliefs. And so the church was partnered with the government uh, in these schools where, as it turns out, you know, thousands of kids died. There was rampant abuse. Um, They built graveyards instead of playgrounds um, because the death toll was so high. Um, And so there, there are ways in which um, you, you, just, you just find a way to survive. And I know, uh, you know, for a lot of people that I've talked to, survival is, does not just mean, you know, finding food and shelter. It means really answering the question, who do we want to be at the moment of our survival? And so you do whatever it takes to carry that with you, which will allow you to survive and live as a people so the the church has you know been largely uh, problematic now I know lots of uh, indigenous Christian people um, great people um, you know they found a way to you know that's their belief system um, but for a lot of people, it was really about um, trying to take uh, the the Indian out of the child, about trying to remove that element of us and and so I I was reading about in the North how they had reconsecrated the ground. They would have like priests or or ministers come in or, or missionaries to say, you know, the reason why our community has suffered so much is because we believed in these false gods and we, we worshipped, you know, um, um, spirits or whatever, Uh, you know, when we should have been, you know, with Jesus and with the Lord, therefore we're going to reconsecrate this, this ground and maybe our poverty and, and strife will go away, you know, just sort of cutting out the whole part where maybe the base, the root of that is colonization. I don't know, ongoing colonization, but you know, it was sort of the the blame was shifted back into the community. Um, And so it became very interesting. I wanted um, the reverend to really have those really insidious beliefs that, you know, the way forward, the way that um, we you know, get better is by putting down, um, you know, these, these things that have held us back, our beliefs, our traditional ways. Um, and, and I hated him for it. And I, I wrote those sermons and, oh my God, I was just sick to my stomach. Um, but but I, I had to give him um, a passion so that he could deliver it. And so, you know, the character really, truly does believe Um, that he is loving his community in the best possible way by pushing them towards, you know, uh, let's, let's talk to industry. Let's get some wealth in here. Let's, let's, let's invite Jesus into our hearts. And the way we do that is by, you know, walking away from, you know, these primitive uh, uh, belief systems, the sweat lodge and, and, you know, believing in, in um, our teachings. Let's, 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 Be right with God. And so it was uh, those that was probably the most difficult um, thing to write, was really trying to genuinely give him the passion of a very misguided person.
0: Yeah. So, an example he's preaching, and these are mostly native people. That are coming. And he says, Your so called community leaders have been agents for a much darker power. They have led you away from the light with simple distractions. Like children, we have allowed ourselves to be distracted. A drum is not a heartbeat. Only the heart God gave you can beat the right way. A sweat lodge will not cleanse you. Only confessing to God can do that. So these were the words he was sharing with the people. I, I hated him.
2: Oh my God, isn't he the worst? Yes. <laughs> he is the worst. Yeah. I hated them, too. I hated them, too. And actually, it, one of the ways that I could get past that is I, I tried to leave little kind of asides for some readers. I know it, it, those passages are difficult, uh, have been difficult for some indigenous people to read. Um, so one of the things is the, the name of the, the ministry, the, the acronym for it, for the, the church that the reverend is there on behalf of, the acronym is MNR um and mnr in in canada in my territory stands for the ministry of natural resources and so but they're just known as the mnr and everybody knows if you're hunting or fishing to watch out for the mnr because they're just assholes they're just you know they they are handing out tickets they they're not um they don't have a good relationship with indigenous people they you know challenge you on the fact that you have actual rights to be able to to hunt and fish and so they kind of they're they're kind of the boogeymen uh you know around around here for people who who are trying to to, to hunt and trap so i i made that acronym purposely i just put it in there because i was like listen we're going to a dark place but like there's still some humor here and there um and i was very happy when people saw it and were like oh hilarious thank god because it it does it does get um it does get difficult but it's also you know one of those things where um this is not uncommon we've heard these things it's i mean this is part of the the school curriculum that that we learned you know about the goodness of the church and the ways they were trying to uh, help our childlike ancestors um so it's nothing new but it it was it was certainly challenging to um get through pages and pages of it uh without just you know, punching him, getting someone in the story to punch him in the face.
0: Well, I think you, you touched on that a little bit, but as a writer, we can't always write characters that we like. First of all, it doesn't probably, it doesn't create like a full community of people and It doesn't reflect mm-hmm. reality. So if you, if someone came to you and said, like, do you have advice for writing a character that you really hate it sounds mm-hmm. like putting in a joke can help, but do you have any other yeah. advice?
2: Absolutely. Um, I had a really hard time more than the Reverend because I I knew he had a purpose, and I was I was taking him in a certain direction. Was writing the character of Cecile, who um, is is in love with the Reverend. She's a member of the church. She's sort of climbing the ranks. She's very pious. Um, she's just you know very self righteous and and. uh you know, really obnoxiously so. Um, and I knew I wanted her in there. Um, and I wrote a full draft with her. Um, and then I realized, oh my God, she is the worst. Like her dialogue was very cardboard. Her, her movements didn't have a lot of um, energy. She would show up on a scene and it was like, oh, there's there's Cecile. Like it wasn't very exciting, and so I realized it was because I didn't like her. Um, so I, I I decided to make it a bit absurd. I decided to give her a very colorful backstory, um, and I challenged myself to not agree with it, to not to to not put any of my beliefs into her, so that I could you know be in a comfortable position to to write. Uh, to write what she would say or think. I gave her her own complete separate identity. I've never known anyone like her, um, not, not all in one place. I'm almost, certainly there's pieces of her and a thousand different people. Um, but I I tried to make her interesting. So the, the, the key for me in writing a villain uh, or a villainous character is they have to completely commit to what it is that they're putting out, even if it's evil. They have to be completely committed to it and they have to believe that they're doing it for the right reasons, whatever, you know, whether their compass is wherever it sits. I mean, I, I, obviously, a Satanist idea of what's right is going to be very different from someone else's, but, you know, if they still believe it's right. Um, some of the most horrible people in history, um, you know, I can think of some current people and, you know, past. Political leaders have really believed in what it was that they were doing. That for some, you know, reason, this was what they were going to do to make things, uh, you know, put things right, set them right, make things great again. You know, so so really, just they had their own set of beliefs and ideals. And to other people, it seems absurd and evil. But in their heads, there has—I mean—they must at some point really, honestly believe in what they're saying. So when I write characters that are are difficult, and I did this with Cecile, I just I, I made her colorful and nuanced. Villains cannot be black and white. It cannot just be like here, you know, here's again that sort of cardboard character walking onto the set. I'm pure evil. They have to have depth to them. There's a reason they are who they are, and even if you don't understand it, you can lay it out for someone else to sort of start building building it or putting it together like Lego pieces. And and I just really wanted her to truly belief in what it was that she was doing. Even though I thought she was a complete ass, I, I had to just allow her to her beliefs um, and, and take her on that journey. So I think really when you're writing difficult characters, a, a large part of it, and I always write or, or imagine, it doesn't need to physically be written down, although largely it is backstories for all of my characters. And most of the stuff that I write doesn't make it onto the page. But I understand it. I understand why a character feels a certain way when they're in the woods as opposed to on the sidewalk. I understand why they they have um you know it, it calms them to to be around the color green. I understand why the picture of their voice changes um, you know, when the speed of the car hits a certain number. And and I don't need to put all of that into the story, but it needs to exist so that the characters are moving with conviction, that there's something behind it all.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
2: Absolutely. So um, I wanted to, and so this sort of goes on the, the poetry aspect. I wanted to read the poem Heat by Charles Bukowski. And Charles Bukowski is a very controversial figure. We all know he was an asshole, um, but there's something about the way that he writes, and I have said this before, it feels to me like if cities, or more specifically alleyways, could talk, the, the language that the bricks would use would be to recite the poems of Bukowski. There's something that he captures. So I'm going to read Heat, which is one of my favorites. If you have ever drawn up your last plan on an old shirt cardboard in an East Side hotel room of winter, with last week's rent due and a dead radiator, you'll know how large small things are. like yourself coming up the stairway, maybe for the final time, with your bottle of wine, thinking of the lady in number nine putting on her garters. And on her dresser there is a dark red drinking glass which catches the overhead light like a soft dream of Jerusalem. And she dusts herself, slips into silk and sheath and spiked feet. And unemployed and looking for work and maybe looking for you, she passes you on the stairway. Such disturbing grace transforms one. Like a blue-winged fly exploding into the summer sky, you decide to hang around and die later. You enter your room and pour wine like blood inward and decide in the morning you'll get up early and read the want ads.
0: Do you want to share a little more about that?
2: I really enjoy and envious of love writers who can capture an entire worldview and really change the way that that understanding sits in my body with words and with as few words as possible. Lydia Davis is another great example, you know, obviously the short story master, but even her word selection changed the way that I was thinking, you know, uh, suddenly um, the cadence picked up a bit and I, and I felt out of breath. And in this, in this poem, there's, you know, describing Uh, a drinking glass that's sitting on this woman's dresser in a rented room. And and I can see her and I can see the beauty of it. It's, it's all the, it's all, I guess, basically comes down to the extraordinary inside of the ordinary. And I, I just really love the ability that he has to do that with the darkest of subject matter. I mean, he's talking about contemplating suicide and then seeing, you know, transforming grace, in, a, in a, a woman who's unemployed and just heading out to look for work, passing him on the stairway. It's such a beautiful moment. And for me, that's, what's so interesting about the world. You know, we we grapple with larger issues, but to be able to sit down uh, and see something so beautiful in, in, in a routine, you know, getting a, a cup of coffee, something so small. I, that's why I love watching people. Um, I'm not so good at conversing with people. I, I stick to myself a lot, um, but I love just, seeing somebody walking down the street and imagining what that is, the sound of footfalls, you know, one of the best things I discovered in one of those moments was how different feet sound in the fall because there's leaves on the concrete and it sounds like, like material being folded, you know, which, which softens everybody's journey. So just little things. And and Charles Bukowski is great at, at pulling those moments to the forefront.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
2: Sure. Uh, I'm going to read a a small piece from the prologue Um, and, and I want to read this because it really, uh, again, was me grappling with the idea that I wanted to talk about a creature that didn't largely exist in the mainstream imagination, but also, um, you know, that I was trying to set the stage for this entire story. And so I really wanted to invoke the rhythm of the people that I was talking about, the community and the land um, while also being able to nail down that, that really changing nature of this ruguru creature. So I tried to, um, I tried to make the language match the landscape while introducing um, uh, this to, to most readers, introducing this new creature, which I think is one of the, uh, you know, only um, sort of god figures uh, that I understand that originate in this land that we still have stories of today. At least that's what I um, told Neil Gaiman when I tweeted at him about American gods. I'm like, oh, you left one out. Anyway, so this is from the beginning and trying to capture all these contradictions. He was a dog, a man, a wolf. He was clothed, he was naked in his fur, he wore moccasins to jig, he was whatever made you shiver, but he was always there, standing by the road, whistling to the stars so that they pulsed bright in the navy sky, as close and as distant as ancestors. Long after the bone salt carried all the way from the Red River was ground to dust, after the words it was laid down with were not even a whisper, and the dialect they were spoken in was rubbed from the original language into common French, the stories of the Rougarou kept the community in its circle, behind the line. When the people forgot what they had asked for in the beginning, a place to live and a community to grow in a good way, he remembered, and he returned on padded feet, light as stardust on the newly paved road, and that Ruguru heart full of his own stories,
0: but his belly empty. He came home not just to haunt. He also came to hunt. Do you want to say anything else about that?
2: Just really that it was about trying to capture contradictions. And so I fought it for a while. I'm like, I'm going to give a very clear image. Uh, and then I thought, well, this, his stories change depending on who's telling it. So I just put the contradictions in there, right? He's a man, he's a dog, he's a wolf. This is, this is everything that he is, because Again, who am I to say that he's not one thing or the other, and maybe he's different for different people? So I just thought I'm going to put it down, and I'm going to, you know, try and give a bit of context and allow people onto the land, into my territory, um, and, you know, be there to guide them if they need it. But largely, here is the territory. Walk with care. Who knows what you might see? Where do you write? Everywhere and anywhere. I've, uh, I have three kids. Um, they're, they're not really children anymore the the youngest is is 14 but um you know I've been a parent since I was 17 years old so I've had to be really good at um squeezing in uh space and time for writing um so I have written you know at work I will admit freely that people have paid me to do one job and I sat in my office and did that job but also you know wrote books um, I write, as I said, on planes because I started traveling so much, um, and that was just precious hours where I was just kind of sitting there. Um, and I very recently, well, up until this move, had a room uh, in my house that I turned into an office, which to me was like the biggest life goal ever. I didn't know that I needed it until I had it, and then I was, would just – spend hours in there surrounded by piles of books and writing. And at some times, uh, you know, for example, when I was doing the editing for, um, for empire of wild, the office was completely 100% covered in pages that I had taped up to the walls from the floor to the ceiling so that I could physically see where I was and where all the connections were or were not.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
2: So it used to be that I would, uh, watch Netflix so or you know Crave or any of those streaming services I would just be like I'm done I'm just going to watch something and not think about this Um, and, and but now that I am writing for TV that's changed and I find myself like instead of at four in the morning watching like Grey's Anatomy in a relaxing way so I can fall asleep I'm watching it being like well that dialogue was wooden this plot point was weak so that's sort of taken off the table now. Um, so I, I can't say that I'm ever truly away from writing. I know that sounds pompous, but uh, that that those wheels are always turning. Um, so much so that I I keep I have to keep paper and pen uh, near near the bed because when I I wake up I I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and want to write something. So I need to have it. You know, immediately there so I can jot down whatever's going on. Um, although I will say um, reading other great books really is such a profound joy because it, it takes me out of my own work um, but then does that other thing where somebody will write a tremendously gorgeous book. I just read Aria by Nazanin Hosier, and it's such a good book that I read the first half completely like in one gulp and in the second half I was like damn it Why can't I write like this? How can she write this good? So there's a little bit of professional jealousy in there too.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
2: I haven't really gotten in the habit of showing people. The one thing that I do have always done is I'll finish a draft and then I will print it up and I will read it out loud. So, uh, and that is a hugely important step for me because hearing it, uh, you know, uses a whole different sense. It 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 puts me into a different position outside of the story, um, and I'm able to be a little more objective and also clean up a lot of the rhythm and and you know pieces. I can hear where where I stall, where my voice wavers a bit, and so I know I need to change the words. That's important for me. Um, more recently, uh, for the past few years, um, I finally have agents. Um, um, at uh, uh, the Cook Agency, and they 're tremendous agents who understand writing, and so i they 've just gotten me into um, the habit of sending pieces to them for for sort of first go and look at it and i uh, it 's been amazing. I completely trust them. they have such a great eye because they also understand me uh, you know my my sort of my career in total and not just an isolated piece of work, so they can really Um, talk to me, no understanding what it is that I'm trying to say. So uh, historically, it it hasn't really been uh, anyone other than reading it aloud. And uh, more recently, I do have trusted readers and my agents. And so I think, you know, anyone who does have a a first reader that they trust, what a tremendous gift that is.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
2: (laughs) Badly. (laughs) Uh, Lots of wine. I, 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 I mean, that's, actually not even a joke. I, I used to deal with rejection, like, oh my God, I am terrible. I need to find a new job. I can't write. This is the worst. My whole life is over. Like all the standard, you know, sort of flailing around and tears. And, um, and then over the years, uh, I just, I mean, everyone says this, but it is true. It's, you just grow a, a thick skin. The one thing um, that has been so instrumental um, in moving forward is, again, I was talking to uh, Lee Maracle, who obviously is an important mentor for me. um, And she said to me, you know, I was lamenting about some rejection or other. um, And she said, um, listen, the one thing you need to remember is to never, ever throw anything away if there are pieces in the work that you're doing or the work itself that isn't working out, maybe it doesn't belong here. Maybe it doesn't belong now, but there's a reason you wrote it. So keep it, cut it out or take the whole thing, put it into a different folder and leave it because there is a reason why that story came to you. Um, And so that was vastly important to me in realizing that, you know, I I thought it was great and somebody thinks it sucks, but maybe it's in the wrong context. Maybe this character belongs in a different book. Maybe this, you know, this story um, doesn't fit into the wider arc of, of the manuscript or maybe this short story isn't a short story. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, you know, a a whole manuscript on its own. So never, ever throw anything out. There's a reason you wrote it. And then the other thing happened um, where, you know, I got this rejection that rejected, um, not just what I had handed in, but sort of insinuating that—well, um, not insinuating it. Pretty much, it said not all of us can write; are capable of writing novels, um, which ironically was the year before the novel that I had written um, became the number one book in the country, and it sat on the um, bestsellers list for, at the top for three years now. Um, but you know, I had heard from this publisher and the and the editorial board that not all of us can write novels. Um, So I had to really look at it and be a bit objective and remind myself that the act of writing is very different from the business of writing and that you can't think about the business of writing while you're doing the act of writing. They are two separate things. And when you start to take a rejection and allow it to reflect on how you feel about writing, you are putting two things together that don't belong in you as the writer. That's the job for your agent and your publisher and your editor that's not your job. And you can't put them together because one will inevitably kill the other one. It cannot cohabitate. So it was important to remember that these are individual perspectives um, and that I just had to keep writing and and not throw anything out.
0: And what is your favorite word? Ah,
2: I love this question. So I have a thing for, let I think they're called onomatopoeia, that when the word sounds like the action, you know, like whisper or hiss, Yes. word that sounds like, yeah. So I love those words. I love saying them. I love reading when I'm doing a reading. Um, But more than those words, um, I love words that give you the feeling of the thing they describe. Like, for example, despair. There's a way that your voice has to lower to say that word, how the tone literally moves downward, and it completely resembles Despair. I think that's such a such a a word that's doing such heavy lifting. But my favorite word is labyrinth, and it actually has nothing to do with you know the 1986 movie Labyrinth, even though David Bowie was super hot in that movie and wore the best tightest pants I've ever seen in my life. That has nothing to do with why I love this word. I love the word because it literally, it looks like a maze. It's difficult to say in all its complexities. It looks like a whole like, geographical country of its own. And then you can put so much in it. It's just one of those words that when I see it on the page, I'm intimidated because I know I'm going to have to say it if I'm reading out loud, but that I also want to get to right away. Because a labyrinth is is everything holding nothing or nothing holding everything. And it, it just it allows so
0: much room for movement. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. This has been a lot of
1: fun. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Cherie Dameline, author of Empire of Wild. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Celeste Ng. We discussed her novel, Everything I Never Told You which is about the disappearance of a young Chinese-American girl and how that impacts her family.
0: You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen, Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.